keep his promises. You don't know what's true anymore. It hurts me to see people burning the flag. Race relations. Tell me I can't have a gun. I just don't like the politics. Unbelievable. It's what you've been waiting for all day. America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Hey, everybody. Buck Sexton here with America Now. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, my friends. It's Freestyle Friday, which means that the show is just going to be... Ad hoc, on the fly, hitting all kinds of topics. We've got a fantastic lineup of guests tonight. Let me just tell you who we've got in case you're wondering. Ben Shapiro, editor-in-chief of The Daily Wire, syndicated columnist. I'm sure many of you know Ben. Dr. Michael Rechtenwald, who's a clinical professor of liberal studies at NYU. He used to be a liberal, then he became a conservative. And then, surprise, everybody he knew basically decided they hated him because of it. We have Rebecca Heinrich from the Hudson Institute. She's a nuke expert. We're going to talk to her about nuclear missiles, Trump, nuclear deterrence, North Korea. Good stuff there. Brandon Judd, president of the National Border Patrol Council. We're going to talk to her about the border and immigration. And then our friend Gordon Chang on the usage of VX gas in the assassination of Kim Jong-un's half-brother in Malaysia in the airport with lots of people around. There's video of it. It's crazy. We'll also talk about what that means for uh, North Korean security and nuclear policy. And I haven't even gotten to the news of the day yet. That's just all, those are our, our experts who will be joining. So uh, I, I would challenge you to find a more jam-packed show in terms of fantastic experts and information and analysis that you will not have gotten anywhere else throughout the day. But first, because it's Friday, why don't we spend a little time on the latest media hyperventilation episode the latest oh my gosh democracy is dead the first amendment is under assault fascism is coming let me tell you what happened because i know you're going to be shivering in fear trigger warning to those you out there uh if you are a snowflake you may melt now this is going to be scary for you and you you if you go on social media you check out the accounts of some major journalists you'll see some Crazy stuff right now. CNN's main banner up on the site right now. An unprecedented act. Big capital letters. You would wonder, um, could this be an, an invasion? Was this a covert action gone wrong somewhere? Have lives been lost? Did we bomb the the wrong building or something what happened here how, how, an unprecedented act this it's friday many of you are probably enjoying lovely weather if you're on the east coast you're thinking you're going off into the weekend do you need to make sure you have enough potable water and 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 ammunition in case things get really scary in the weeks ahead is the civilization collapsing around us right now an unprecedented act <gasps> so scary no the unprecedented act here is that a few Media outlets, I kid you not, a few media outlets were banned, I shouldn't say banned, barred, just denied access to a press gaggle, like a gaggle of geese, a press gaggle with Sean Spicer, spicy, and that's it. Now you've got people who are in full-on freak-out mode about this. Professional journalists, many of them highly paid with large followings and big TV appearances. 
you have Brian Stelter, whom my only experience with at CNN was when he tried to ambush me in an interview that was pre-taped for his show on terrorism, because who knows more about that? Me, former CIA counterterrorism analyst who briefed the president and served in Iraq and Afghanistan specifically to work on terrorism issues, or Brian Stelter? I don't know. I guess he thought he knew more. Needless to say, the interview was never aired because it was a buck slap. Do we have? Oh. (laughs) I love it. We're going to start using that more. So give me one more. I like it. We'll just do it again. Give me one. Buck slap. Now you know. So he never put he never put that interview, never aired the interview. And the show didn't even have the respect for me as a paid contributor at the time to tell me before it aired. They taped it on a Friday, it aired on a Sunday. He never aired the interview and didn't even couldn't even shoot me an email saying, Hey, we uh you know, we, we didn't we didn't end up using it. They said, they, you know, they gave me some story about breaking news. No, it's because he came out and he said, well, excuse me, sir, but uh, how do you know that this latest terrorist act is actually terrorism? Uh, because I was a terrorism analyst and it's obviously terrorism. Are you are you trying to clown me here? What is going on? Um, but he's talking about this latest uh, media media frenzy around the people being banned from the gaggle or whatever, not allowed into the gaggle. Banned is a word that's overused these days. Here's what Mr. Stelter had to say. Play clip 63. We've seen this administration stacking the deck uh, with friendlier news outlets. And when I say friendlier, what I mean are uh, news outlets that have a point of view, in some cases are openly rooting for the president. Uh, We don't see CNN or the New York Times rooting for any president, whether a Democrat or Republican. But the Breitbart's of the world, they do root for candidates and root for presidents. There's not anything necessarily wrong with that. It's a point of view form of journalism. But what we've seen is this administration taking a lot of questions from conservative outlets, from friendlier (gasps) outlets. Oh, no. Uh, And that's a way of stacking the deck. Oh, no. So what was the deck when Obama was president for eight years? Was that deck not stacked with countless friendly outlets, almost all of them? Did President Obama not specifically cite not just Fox News, the only news channel that provided any opposition to his policies whatsoever, and not entirely opposite. It's not like MSNBC, where it's either left-wing invective, you know, left-wing diatribe after left-wing diatribe, and then they bring a conservative on either to be ambushed and humiliated or to tell other conservatives how bad they are. You know, the Joe Scarborough routine. Oh, you know, these conservatives are so bad. Right, okay. But how is that different? Why is that better for democracy? Why is a lapdog press less dangerous than a president who calls out an oppositional press? I don't understand that. In fact, I would argue that a media complex as powerful and as widespread as the one that exists in this country that will do the bidding of an administration is a much more dangerous situation for democracy, a word that everyone likes to throw around like it's about to end tomorrow. And yes, we're a republic, not a democracy, but you know what I'm saying. A much more dangerous situation would be a press that will go along with the lies, a press that will defend, a press that acts as though they are an adjunct to the administration. That's much worse. That is what you had in the Soviet Union, by the way. You had a press, of course it wasn't a free press, but you had a press that was doing the bidding of the of the regime. Look at any totalitarian society, any authoritarian state around the world. The press does the bidding of the regime. They don't they don't live in this constant back and forth of the regime is being savaged by the press. No, that's actually 
That's actually pretty healthy. And, and the regime savages the press in turn. You know, that's actually pretty healthy. This is their job. This is the media's job. And yet they're complaining about their job. Uh, speaking truth to power is supposed to be difficult. Speaking truth to power is not supposed to get you a pat on the back from er- literally everybody. It's not like the rest of the media is not supporting them. And, you know, these people, some of them, they're millionaires for showing up, getting some powder on their faces and reading off a teleprompter. And they wonder why people who work for a living and, and having trouble paying the mortgage and are sick of hearing about how they're not doing enough and they're lazy and they're bad and, you know, if only they worked harder, maybe immigrants wouldn't have to do their jobs. You know, they wonder why people don't really want to hear it anymore from this media. They wonder. And you got, like, Stelter out there. I don't even know, I don't know what this guy's expert. He's a member of the media whose expertise is, is other people in the media? Wow. Do, do I have that expertise, too? I, I feel like I do. do. Do I have a Ph.D. in giving my opinions about media as a member of the media? Sure. Dr. Buck, here we are. Call in any time we can talk about it. So, an unprecedented act. What, oh, what happened? I'm sorry. Let me tell you. I'm getting all excited. Let me tell you what happened. CNN and other news outlets, this is on CNN now, were blocked on Friday from attending an off-camera White House press briefing that other reporters were handpicked to attend, raising alarm among media organizations and First Amendment watchdogs. The decision struck veteran journalists as unprecedented in the modern era and escalated tensions in the already fraught relationship between the Trump administration and the press. Um, A couple of things that I would point out here. Whether it strikes somebody as unprecedented doesn't matter. Unprecedented is a word with a meaning. It means having no precedent, meaning not having occurred before. So either it is unprecedented or it is not. Kind of like you're either a man or a woman. This is a binary thing, and it is rooted in fact and truth and objective reality. But they're saying, oh, it feels unprecedented. Now we have to hear about how terrible this is, how Trump is attacking the First Amendment. You go online and do a search about free press. Oh, Trump is such a threat to the free press. I've talked to you about how, if nothing else, the sympathy for the media right now with regard to the difficulties encountered in doing their jobs is particularly low because for eight years, they were perfectly happy to parrot administration talking points. They were perfectly happy to go along for the ride. And more than that, to destroy people, to defame people that were willing to stand up and speak truth about the Obama administration. These major news outlets were quite happy, quite happy indeed, to be attack dogs for the Obama administration. And now that there's somebody in the White House who says, I don't think the American people should trust you. They saw what you did for eight years. They act like they're these wounded victims. Oh, what are we going to do with ourselves? But let's get back to the facts, if you don't mind, for a second here. Let's return to the center of this argument. They are saying now at CNN that this is unprecedented and that this is a huge problem. And now there are threats to boycott the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which, big whoop, Who cares? I've been there. The food is bad. It is too big. It is boring. And it is pretty pathetic how self-involved a lot of the people there really are. Okay, side note. But everyone's all upset about this. It's a Friday. We're going into the weekend. and We're supposed to believe that this is evidence of a burgeoning threat to this republic. 
Unprecedented, they say. White House blocks news organizations from press briefing. This was a side gaggle where Spicer was talking to a few groups. A bunch of press organizations were there, by the way. It's not. He allowed NBC left wing, ABC left wing, CBS, not as left wing, but still a little left to center. Fox News. They were all allowed to attend. Okay. Oh, here's what really stings, though. The New York Times was kept out, but Breitbart News was allowed in. Okay, so why why is that such a terrible crime against humanity? But you know what? Let's even just go back to this. Unprecedented, we're told. Main headline on CNN.com. Unprecedented. Let me read to you from what happened back in 2013. Yeah, that's right. The Obama administration. Obama holds off-record meeting with MSNBC hosts and liberal pundits. This written about on Politico.com. President Obama held an off-the-record meeting with MSNBC hosts and liberal pundits on Thursday. Politico has learned. Present at the meeting. Oh, get ready for it. MSNBC's Ed Schultz and Lawrence O'Donnell. Washington Post economics blogger Ezra Klein. Mother Jones, Washington bureau chief David Korn. Talking Points memo editor and publisher John Marshall. Think Progress editor-in-chief Judd Legum. Etc., etc. Lefty, 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 far left, further left, most far left we can go. Private dinner with the President of the United States discussing matters of the nation. Why was this? This is, but this is okay. Private dinner with the President for far left outlets where they discuss access and they talk about policy and what's going on in the country. That's fine. But a meeting with Spicer on a Friday afternoon where he lets in a whole lot of press, but some press not let in, that is the beginning of the endless night of tyranny. I don't think so, everybody. We're not going to accept that narrative. Not on my watch. We'll be right back. Team Buck, we are back here in the Freedom Hunt. I got so excited about what I was going to be able to talk to you about in the last segment because I just, I oh, it's so such a rich area of commentary. The media, oh. It's so hard for us. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been terrible. All these journalists in this country jailed for their opinions. All the, all the late-night sweeps by the secret police whenever you post something mean about Trump on Twitter. I mean, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, I, look, that would be terrible, and I would be right alongside these crying liberals on, on the barricades defending our freedom if that were the case. But that's not happening, so we can all just stop with the— hysterics. But I forgot to give you the phone number. I've still forgotten. 844-900-2825. 844-900-2825. If you want to call and talk about this or anything from today or anything from this week, quite honestly, it's still on your mind. Uh, light them up in here, Team Buck. I want to, I want to hear what your thoughts are on all this. Um, Spicer, Spicy, as, I, as we like to call him now, has an interesting relationship with the press. And they... <laughs> I think they they like to try to get under his skin a little bit, and he has to sometimes calm them down a little bit. Play it. A very very different subject, and I think Shannon, 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 Glenn, this isn't a TV program. We're gonna Shannon. Okay, you don't get to just yell out questions. We're gonna raise our hand like big boys and girls, because it's not your job to just yell out questions. Shannon, please go. Okay. Well, first on the. There's just this this showmanship at work in the press briefings in the West Wing where people now, anything they can do to show their antipathy towards this administration and anything they can do to show that they are hostile towards it is career enhancing. And we should just be honest about that. I didn't even get into the fact that you had uh, this CNN guy before. He's got his own show at CNN. 
Stelter, uh, that he was saying that, that the New York Times or and CNN don't root for people. That's just laughable. And I don't know which is worse, and I don't know which is true. Are they that deluded about their journalistic integrity, or do they just realize they have to say that, and so they're cynical, and they're disingenuous, and they're lying? Because if they give up the game, so to speak, if they tell people the truth, that they, of course, do have certain candidates that they want to support. Of course they do. The New York, the New York Times doesn't—I grew up reading the New York Times. Of course they support certain candidates. Democrats is what we call them. They support Democrats. And while their support has evolved over the years on certain positions, it has always been in lockstep with the elitist progressive left of the Democratic Party, which now, it should be pointed out, controls the Democratic Party. They are running the Democratic Party. The Pelosi's and the the Schumer's and the oh, yes, the Elizabeth Warren's. Oh, it's what she's had such a, a, a rough and tumble, difficult career as a Harvard law professor, a a perch that she managed to purchase through race fraud. So that's nice. That's helpful. Um, you know, she managed to get herself into this position by, as we know, stating that she was native. She gamed the system and won't admit to it, and still we have people that refuse to believe that the system can be so gamed because then it would force us to answer much broader questions about maybe this is a system that needs another look. Maybe we shouldn't make determinations about one's acceptance into school or into certain jobs because of ethnic background in any context. Maybe maybe that's a much more laudable goal, but uh, I digress. I wanted to also talk to you about the, and I, I will, but I realize right now we'll be getting into it a bit too quickly. Um, I want to talk to you about this story, and I guess I'll use this now to tease the stories. You're going to have to stay with me for us to to slice and dice the lies on this one. That the White House, according to some outlet, oh, that's right, CNN again. They must miss me over there. I will tell you that since I've been... Uh, sharing a, a bit more of what I really think about how things go over there. I have not received any. Uh, I've not received any calls. They used to ask me to come on all the time. I used to work over there, but they used to ask me to come on even afterwards. But no, not in a while. Big surprise. Uh, CNN was reporting on the White House trying to demand that the FBI undermine a story that was put out by the New York Times. And the implication here is that the White House is trying to bully a federal agency into bullying a major news organization. That's the way the story was originally written. That's the way they were pushing the narrative from the start. Here's what's so interesting about it. From what we see from other outlets and, of course, from the White House's own statements afterwards, that's just not true. And if they're going to be the so-called guardians of truth all the time when it comes to Trump and every statement— they should probably try a little harder to stop lying so much themselves. Going into a quick break, team. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. 
All right, Buck is back, and he is joined, and he's going to stop speaking in third person because it's weird. Uh, I'm joined by Ben Shapiro. He's editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com, a syndicated columnist, host of the Ben Shapiro Show and The Morning Answer, and writes for National Review. Ben, thank you for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, can we just start with your? I'm sure. Have you seen this whole dust up over the uh, exclusion of a few press outlets from the gaggle? I mean, I'm not saying that I I endorse them playing the favorites in this way, but a couple things. Well, w- what's your reaction to this? I mean, look, I think that President Obama did this on a not inconsistent basis. Um, I thought it was bad when he did it. I'm not a fan of when Trump does it. Uh, I think that. When, when, you have, when you have the White House picking and choosing outlets that it wants to answer questions from, I'm just not a huge fan of that because it means that you can choose your friends. I do think there is a difference between campaigns doing it, and, and Obama did it a lot during the campaign, so did, so did Trump. Uh, when campaigns do it, campaigns are private organizations. My view is that I, I would like to actually have a blanket rule, and the blanket rule should be that only unfriendly outlets get into the White House press room when the, when the president of the United States is, uh, is of the opposing party. So that means that that when President Obama's president, then it only gets to be Breitbart and Daily Caller and Daily Wire and The Blaze, and all, all of Obama's not friends get to be there. And when President Trump is president, then we get to have ABC and NBC and CBS and all the rest. I agree with everything you're saying. I would just add to it that the uh, problem with this would be that CNN, for example, I played a clip before Brian Stelter saying, and he's a media critic, this is even funnier, that CNN and The New York Times don't advocate for candidates. I mean, do, do people really still believe this? Did, does anyone still hold to this fiction? The answer is yes. I know I'm sort of rhetorically putting this out there, but that's that's part of the problem is that the, the Times, the Washington Post, they cling to this bizarre fiction that they are not politically uh, partisan. It's one of the things that allows Trump to get away with calling them fake news and for all of us to nod along, because if they just said, look, we are obviously left leaning. And you can take all of our biases as they come, you know, and if they had the reporters basically just say, yeah, I voted Democrat or, yeah, I voted Republican, that'd be a lot better because the, because we're going to come to the conclusions to what their biases are, no matter what they say their biases are. They may as well be open and obvious about it. I mean, I think that in some ways it's more objective to say I am a conservative and here's the news that I'm reporting than it is to just say you don't know what I am and here's the news that I'm reporting. Because I don't know whether to take it with a grain of salt or whether to take it with seven grains of salt because I feel like you're fibbing to me. Yeah, look, I, I just want people to be accurate and, and forthright with how they present themselves if they're going to be in the media. I always find it funny. Whenever I would go on CNN or any place and share an opinion, you get people, I'm sure you get this too, afterwards, well, well, you're allowed to have an opinion, aren't you? And it's like, yeah, well, I tell people that I am conservative. <laughs> there's no there's no funny business about where I'm coming from on these issues. And CNN acts like they're the straight down the middle. Anyway, I don't want to get too down in the weeds on, on any specific outlet. But I also would note that uh, you mentioned Obama not uh, inconsistently having uh, prefer- uh, preferential treatment for some members of the press. I read from a, a political piece from back in 2013. He was having private dinners with the furthest left pundits in the media ecosystem. I feel like they were handing out copies of the Communist Manifesto under the menus. Why is that okay? Yeah, and it wasn't okay then. And the media didn't care because the media were the ones who were having the private dinners with them. And but Obama consistently said that he was friend that he he liked he liked Vox. He liked a lot of the other. Um, you know, he, he liked a lot of the other left-wing outlets, and then he would do interviews specifically with them. He'd take questions from BuzzFeed, and he'd do videos for them. And then when it came to the right, then he would say, well, Fox News is illegitimate. A bunch of these other outlets are illegitimate. Again, I, I, I'm with you. I think that I would like an adversarial press under all circumstances. 
Um, and I don't like it with Trump's throwing people out, but I think it's a little bit hypocritical of the media to suddenly get worried about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I don't applaud the picking and choosing of outlets, but I, I cannot abide this, one, this is new, it's not new, and even more, it's unprecedented. That's just not. That's just uh, an unwillingness to use Google. From the, and it's the main banner headline on CNN right now. You've got New York Times journalists who are crying a river on social media about this, but let's, uh, let's get on. So, you, yeah, I, I see this the same way. I, I want to get on to the uh, response to the whole transgender situation. Anybody who hasn't seen it, by the way, I mean, Ben was the only, was it a Dr. Drew panel, Ben? This went viral. I mean, I saw this. I feel like everybody Uh, I know in media saw this. Dr. Drew panel, and you just refused to call a a very obviously uh, large, burly male sitting next to you, she, and this caused quite an issue for you. So I just want to put that context out there before we talk about the policy. what, What happened there? Well, I mean, it was, it was kind of funny. So they told me that they wanted me to come on and talk about this about a year ago about Caitlyn Jenner being given an award from ESPN for heroism. And they said, we want you to come on because you're the only conservative in a 30-mile radius of Los Angeles. So I, uh, so I came in, and they told me, you know, say what you want to say. And, you know, my perspective on transgenderism is that it's a mental disorder, that you can't magically change your sex, that men are men and women are women. And they sat me next to a guy named Zoe Turr, and Zoe is formerly Bob Turr and has had surgeries and all this, but Bob is a genetic male. And so we're having this whole conversation, and about halfway through the conversation, I haven't spoken at all. It's just it's me versus six panelists, and all six of the panelists are just trying to figure out whether Caitlyn Jenner is a great hero or the greatest hero. And, uh, and finally they came to me, and I said, you know, what my opinion of the situation was. And Zoe got very upset, and Zoe turned to me, and he said, uh, you don't know anything about genetics, little boy. And I said, and he kept kind of prodding me in this way. And finally I said, what are your genetics, sir? And it was the sir that sort of set him off. He reached over and grabbed me by the back of the neck on national TV uh, and said, if you don't cut that out, I'm going to send you home in an ambulance, which, as I've said before, it was weird. My first thought was, that doesn't even make any sense. You don't go home in an ambulance. And that's Um, assault. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but after, after, after the entire panel reacted by, how dare you say sir to a person who's obviously a genetic male? I said, well, that's the entire question that we're, we're debating. Like if I if I were to say not, if I were to not treat Zoe Turr as male, then I'm conceding your argument, which is that he's a female, and I don't concede that argument. That's the entire nature of the argument. Just because Zoe's sitting next to me doesn't change the objective fact that Zoe is a male, even if Zoe says that he's a female. And you know, offensiveness is a backseat to the actual content of this conversation. It'd be one thing if we weren't talking about transgenderism, and I didn't say sir. But the entire content of the conversation is about whether transgender people are the sex to which they claim membership. Yeah, well, I remember seeing that clip and thinking, that's also, I, I just draw a line there, too. I, I'll call, I will call uh, Private Manning, Chelsea Manning, if Bob wants to be Zoe and have long hair and wear right. a dress, no problem with all that. It's America, it's a free country, and, and I actually don't care, and I, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I, I'm assuming you don't care what somebody's first name is either. Uh, no. But but the 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 pronoun issue, the reason they get so testy, they just being the left, I mean, the reason the left gets so testy about it is because, as you said, it is the only concession that needs to be made because you're saying, yeah, OK, this is a male that can become a female. And I refuse to do that, too. And I think we're approaching and this is what we see with the backlash over the removal of an order that Obama put in seven point five years into his presidency. And it's not even an order. It's just guidance. It's non-binding. People act like this is a repeal of the civil rights movement. It's insane. Yeah, it is. It is totally crazy. And, and again, there is a difference between you know, calling somebody the name that they put on their driver's license, that I don't care what somebody's name is, and making the imposition on me that I am supposed to change my, my views on what biology are 
because you want me to do so. That's no longer you saying that, that's no longer you just wanting to be left alone. Now you're making an imposition on me. And it is an imposition on me when you ask me to switch my entire view of biology in order to accommodate you. That's yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm, it's not, it's not even is it about not me, me not being willing to do it. I'm, I think it's a terrible thing for society to do because now you're teaching children that they can pick their sex. You're creating gender confusion among particularly children. And gender confusion among children is deeply, deeply unhealthy. And people who are transgender have a wildly elevated suicide rate, 40 percent lifetime suicide rate for people who are transgender. And when you're creating more confusion among young kids, what you're really saying is it's okay if more of them start to identify as transgender, and you're you're providing you're suggesting that it is utterly non-malleable whether somebody starts thinking in a certain way, and that's totally not true. It's especially not true when it comes to transgenderism, given the fact that 80 percent of the kids who at one point think they're a member of the opposite sex grow out of it as they get older. Yeah, and I I just refuse to bend the knee and and be a party to a falsehood. I, I just I think that that's dangerous on an intellectual level, uh, ethically. I think it's inc- incredibly problematic. But I also want to want to get us to the argument that is now being made. We have a Tucker Carlson last night had an exchange with a trans oh with a uh, pardon me with a DNC uh, activist who was speaking about transgender issues. Here's how some of the exchange went. Play it. There's no biological anchor to sex anymore. It's all determined by the individual. So my obvious question for you is, how do I know? If a person's male or female, is there some other absolute standard that people have to meet to be male or female, other than what they say? One, one's gender identity is, is enough to show what gender they are. And so if you're okay. confused about that, I mean, I leave that, you know, to your level of enlightenment and... and uh, okay, and so a very, a very smug and annoying answer from this guy. But if, for those who haven't seen it, I would say go and watch the whole of the interview. It's very, it's very worthwhile. Uh, ben... He didn't even, meaning this guy from the DNC or wherever he is, the Democrat that's arguing with Tucker here, he doesn't even make the left's argument properly because their argument is, yeah, in fact, if you consider yourself to be transgender, you can play on women's sports teams if you're a male. Right. You can be in a female prison if you're a male. And by the way, that does also, as we saw with the Rachel Dolezal situation, apply to race, too, because there's no way for them to get out of it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bizarre, bizarre argument. I had this argument. It went viral on Facebook. It's about 14 million hits. I had this argument with a student at Ferris State. And I asked her a very simple question, and that was, I said, how old are you? And she said, I'm 22. And I said, okay, why aren't you 60? Like, why can't you identify a 60? And she had no answer for that. Well, why shouldn't you be able to identify a 60? If I identify as a 60-year-old person in a 22-year-old's body, then what exactly is the big problem? If I want to join the AARP tomorrow, then why shouldn't I be able to join the AARP? And get benefits. Yeah, exactly. Just because you know that I'm specifically, why why can't I be eligible for Medicare? I should be able to be eligible for Medicare. I should be able to apply for Medicare and say that I was born in a particular year. Because, and just because you know that I was not born in that particular year doesn't mean, hey, I'm an old soul. What's the problem? You went to law school, Ben. Uh, explain to me how somebody, if, if gender is a state of mind, which is a, a shortened version of the argument the left makes on this, including that guy last night on Tucker's show, uh, why can't I apply for, as, as he asked, a uh, women's uh, small business loan? Or why can't I apply for a minority-specific scholarship to a school? Because the same argument applies to race, whether that guy who was on last night agrees or not. It does, because there's no way for them to get around it. Well, in fact, race is significantly less biologically driven than, than sex, obviously. I mean, you can, like, there, there's no hard gap between a black person and a white person where you decide, okay, this person is now black or this person is now white. Like, it used to be that, that people were considered black if they had one grandparent who was black in certain areas of America. 
you know, it depends on how you gauge it. But there, there's no, there's nothing that, there's nothing in the genetic code that says, okay, now this is a black person versus this is a white person. There's a lot in the genetic code that says this person is a female versus this is a male. I mean, the, the chromosomes just say that. Yeah, so I would, I would have been a three-sport D1 athlete if I could have played on women's teams. Full stop. <laughs> okay, but that wouldn't have made me a good athlete for a male. That just would have made me a weirdo. Well, that, that's and, and that's the thing is that. Objective standards don't change just because you want them to change. But what this really is, is it's the ultimate expression of the left's belief that subjectivity should, trans- should trump objectivity in favor of emotional equality. So they're not even looking for equality anymore. They're looking for emotional equality. Everyone should feel equally good. Everyone should feel equally special. And that means that my subjective view of my own feelings is more important than your objective view of my biological sex or my, my – my, my ability to play basketball like forget about men and women i don't understand why i shouldn't be able to identify as a really great basketball player and the and the chicago bulls shouldn't have to hire me as their point guard like what, 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 right. what like, you know, if you, know, you can if you can subvert objective reality to social uh, to social good or social justice or whatever then then you it never stops ben i'm having fun talking to you or we're about to run into that break uh, so i gotta go but he's the editor-in-chief of dailywire.com Syndicated columnist, host of the Ben Shapiro Show. He writes column for National Review. Follow him on Twitter at Ben Shapiro. Ben, have a great weekend. Thank you for your time. You too, be well. All right, team, we'll be right back. Team Buck, welcome back. Uh, 844-900-2825 on the lines. Michael in Florida, WFLA. What's up, Michael? Hey, man. Um, Buck, I really just have a couple of questions for you, man, because I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around this whole transgender, transgender bathroom thing with the kids. Um, you know, first off, I, I don't know how many transgender kids there are in the United States, but, I mean, you know, it seems like the liberals keep pointing towards, well, the children, the children. I, I don't know how many there are. It seems like uh, I mentioned a number, Michael, on air the other day. I said, uh, or no, I'm sorry. I mentioned that I didn't know the number. And the statistics that I've seen, it ranges from about, 0.2% to maybe 0.5% of the population. So it's it's clearly a very small subset of the overall population in this country. It might even be as low as 0.1. Uh, but we're not, the, remember, the, the right or people who are critical of these policies are not the ones that wanted to talk about this. This was made an issue by the last administration. The media has seized on it. And now you better obey, Michael, or else they're going to call you and me and everyone else a bigot, and there will be consequences for us. That's the, that's the America they think we're living in. Well, I have a very liberal cousin, and this is quite a heated debate earlier today that we were having. And, you know, I said, well, you know, this is a very small percentage of children in the United States. And I was, you know, saying that, well, why can't we just find a reasonable accommodation for these kids? You know, maybe let them use a can, can I jump in with something here, Michael? In the case, the most famous case, I believe, that involved Gavin Grimm, who is now being held up as uh, the the, uh, the standard bearer for this issue, uh, I believe they did make, the school did make an accommodation. They set up a janitor's closet as a separate changing and restroom. So you get your own, think about this, you're a high school student, you get your own bathroom, uh, and he that was unacceptable. It's not that they, it's not that the person who believes to himself or herself to be transgender uh, wants to have their privacy respected. They want to be able to infringe on the privacy of other people, i.e., it's a, it's a guy who wants to dress with their undress with the ladies. And anything short of that is unacceptable because he doesn't think he's a guy. Well, I, I guess I'm just a bigoted guy, but, you know. I, 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 look, I, I try to be as nice to everybody on radio and in my day-to-day life as I possibly can be. I, I really do try. I make an effort. But I'm not calling somebody who's a he a she. I'm just not going to do it. 
And I, I think we're entering an America where if the Democrats had their way, you know, that could be like a fireable offense. It's insane. To me, that they want to get behind a very small portion of the United States and push something else. Uh, it, it, and you can't make it about that. I don't know why they're trying to make it about that. It seems like they have other objectives. Yeah, I, it's I don't know. It's it's just getting they they look they've jumped the shark on this. I mean, it's madness now uh, because they whether they want to admit to this publicly all at once or not. And Michael, thank you for calling in from uh, Florida. Uh, whether they want to admit this publicly or not, they just have no argument against. Well, now that means men on women's sports teams, all sex segregation has to go away or has to be subject to the whims of anyone who believes they should get a chance at the other side. Uh, you know, to to be on the other side, um, that it goes away. And as a matter of law, that has real implications. Uh, Jim in Arizona, K-O-Y. What's up, Jim? Jim in Arizona? Bueller? Bueller? He's gone? No? No dice? Okay. Well, we tried. Um, uh, what else did I want to say to you? Got so much. I've, I've I'm like sitting here, and stuff is getting thrown on the cutting room floor during this radio show. I got so many topics. I feel like for a Friday, it wouldn't people wouldn't assume that at this at this hour it would be so topic rich. But there's so much happening and coming uh, coming out in the news cycle. So um, next hour, just to give you a little preview of what we're going to hit, uh, we've got Dr. Michael Rechtenwald, is a professor of liberal studies who switched over to being a conservative. That's he's going to tell you how much fun that is. We've got Rebecca Heinrichs talking to us about nukes, nuclear deterrence. Trump saying our nukes need to get uh, stronger. And we've also got Brandon Judd from the, from the National Border Patrol Council. Gordon Chang joining later to, to talk about North Korea. And I've got a whole bunch of things I want to talk to you about, including uh, that whole White House trying to bully the FBI, which tough to bully the FBI, even for the White House, into uh, suppressing a news story that The New York Times put out. Well, did that actually happen, or were they just trying to make the administration look bad? It's a question that we should all uh, spend some time thinking about. So we got that and a whole lot more coming up in the next hour. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. All right, Team Buck, welcome back. 844-900-2825 is the phone number. Thank you so much for being here with me. We've got a lot of ground to cover, including this hour the allegation that Chief of Staff for the White House, Reince Priebus, tried to get the FBI to smack down a New York Times story, inappropriately, of course. Inappropriately, they say. Well, we'll get into that and more. But first, we're joined by Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. He is a clinical professor of, of uh, liberal studies at New York University, and he is somebody who has become more conservative, has been a lifelong liberal, he posted on Facebook uh, that uh, because Bill O'Reilly tweeted his handle and interview, and he suggested that, well, you know what, let's just have him tell us what happened. Dr. Uh, Dr. Reckonwell, thanks for calling in. Hey, thanks for having me. So I, I wanted to give, uh, I wanted to read some of what you said here, but we got you on, live and, and on the air. So let's just take, uh, let's just let you explain to us what happened here. Uh, yeah, uh, so I was interviewed for Bill O'Reilly's uh, The Contributing Factor, this podcast. And he, you know, they tweeted out my um, the interview and my handle, 
Um, and then I guess uh, a number of uh, people that I guess troll him uh, started to uh, troll me on my on my Twitter. What did you guys talk about in the interview? Let me just ask you that before we get into the trolling. Uh, yeah, I talked all about, uh, you know, PC authoritarianism on campus uh, and uh, what I call social justice warrior ideology and its mechanisms and how it's being instituted and how this is operating on campuses to a chilling effect. Uh, in terms of speech, expression, right down speakers and all that. I mean, this is all the the rage and the headlines these days. I talked about all that because I've been in the, I've been in the forefront of this new free speech movement. There's very few of us that are actually fighting this. Uh, but anyway, um, then I guess a few uh, thousand people started to uh, troll me on Twitter, basically because I said, you know. If Milo Yiannopoulos were a liberal, these same people that are, you know, symbolically hanging him would be defending him zealously. And they just went insane. I had thousands and thousands of. uh, Yeah, I mean, Lena Dunham, just to to follow up on your point there, Lena Dunham in a book uh, falsely, uh, well, alluded to a a rape that uh, was tied to somebody that had nothing to do with it. Uh, So there was a false accusation in one of her books, and also said some pretty horrible stuff about what she did to her baby sister, if I recall. Her so, but own. and the left was defending her. Yeah, they defended her. So there, you know, there's a complete hypocrisy. I mean, it's tribalism that they have. And and to go further, they're not only tribalists. They're they're these people. This is the totalitarian left that we're dealing with today. Um, it's they're extremely authoritarian. They're extremely uh, critical. They don't want others to speak. They, they're trying to shut down the expression of anybody but their type, their kind, and it's just it's just unbelievable. So I mean, I was inundated with a Twitter, you know, shower of abuse of the kinds I've never seen. I used to be a left left leaning liberal activist, you know, during the Bush era, and I got you know I got hate mail here and there, and nothing even approaches. The quality uh, the de- and the degree of vitriol and venom that comes out of these people. It's unbelievable. Are there, were there threats made? I mean, this is what happens to my fellow conservatives all the time when they try to speak yeah. about these issues. They, they get death threats. They get uh, horrific uh, imagery tweeted at them. Right. Uh, the, the left is all about tolerance, and yet the most active leftists that I seem to come across are the nastiest uh, most reprehensible human beings you could ever find anywhere. Yeah, I had death threats to my. Uh, I had it set so that people could send me direct messages, whether they were followers or not. I got death threats there. People posted pictures, uh, um, uh, magnified pictures of my forehead with targets on them, uh, things like that. Uh, and you know, a lot of uh, vile. Uh, and very, very abusive. Let me ask you, you're a professor at NYU. Are some of your fellow professors, even if just quietly, are, are they troubled by this psychotic authoritarianism about speech and uh, progressive social justice items? Are, are, are they are they a little worried? Do they realize that they well, got a whole it, campus it, full of kids that think that they can say anything they want, that they can even be violent against someone because they don't like the words coming out of that person's mouth? You know, if they are buck, they aren't. They aren't mentioning it, or they're, or they're they're either they're either fervent supporters of this uh, SJW madness, or else they're too afraid to say anything. Because you know, when I spoke up and criticized 
PC authoritarianism on campus in an interview in October. Two days later, after the interview appeared, I was put on uh, paid leave. So, and also, you know, uh, this committee, official committee uh, of my program, calling themselves the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Committee. That's a terrifying. That's that's like being sent to yeah. the re-education camp, just hanging out with them. This, this is very Orwellian, and it's double speak because they're anything but for diversity, equity, or inclusion. I call them now the uniformity, uh, inequity, and exclusion group. That's uniformity to a prescribed ideology, inequity for anyone who doesn't hold it, and exclusion from the university for anyone with the temerity to speak their minds about it. Uh, This is unbelievable. There's a prescribed ideology. It's being issued through administration now. SJW types, social justice warrior types, are running the university, their vocabulary, their particular ethics, which are all screwed up for reasons I could get into. This is now the ethical vocabulary of universities, and they're instituting the administrative tools that SJWs handed to them. Last one for you, Professor. Do you see any way to address this problem on the, on campuses, and, and is there any – do you see a movement growing across the country where people like you just say – Enough is enough. I got to leave the left behind. They've they've lost it. I'm hearing from a lot of people since I've been speaking up. Professors from all over the country writing me often and most like uh, surreptitiously and anonymously. They're afraid to even tell me who they are because they're so afraid for their jobs if they speak up against this stuff. But I'm hearing from people, and if more people have the courage uh, of their convictions, if they have any, to speak up against what's going on, we may have a chance, Buck. Dr. Michael Rechtenwald, professor at NYU. Thank you for joining, sir. Great to have you. My pleasure, Buck. Thanks for having me. All right, team phones are open, 844-900-2825. Quick break, right back, much more. Welcome back to Buck Sexton with America Now. So there was a big dispute playing out in the media today. Not, not the, oh, he didn't let us come to the press gaggle, spicy was getting a little frisky and didn't let some of us hang out. Spicy's being naughty. No, there's something more substantive than that, although that's fun to talk about and goes to some core issues about the media's honesty and competency and everything else we like to get into here. Uh, Ryan's pre- okay, here's the story as run by CNN. <laughs> a lot of, I'm not trying to do a lot of CNN bashing here, but it, it is really the heart of Trump opposition right now. It's not the heart of reporting on Trump. It's the heart of Trump opposition. It is the beating heart. CNN, New York Times, Washington Post are the the centerpiece of the anti-Trump uh, media in this country. I think that's fair. You know, because the, the nation and the Daily Co. I mean, who, you know, come on. Unless you're like a gender studies major at, uh, you know, Smith or Amherst or something. I don't think you're paying much attention to what the Daily Coast is saying about the president. All right. Uh, that's a real study, but that's a real course, by the way. At my college at Amherst, we had women's and gender studies, WAGs, which was a real series of courses you could take and major in women and gender studies, because that's going to be useful to you for the rest of your life. All right. FBI. Here's what CNN said. FBI refused White House request to knock down recent Trump Russia stories. So this is set up as this evil uh Uh, brute force, anti-democratic, anti-First Amendment administration that just terrifies young children in their sleep. This awful, awful man known as Donald Trump and his group of thugs in the White House 
ter- tried to terrify the FBI into undermining a New York Times story. Remember what the New York Times story was? This is important. The Times ran a story saying that some intelligence officials were corroborating some parts, we don't know what parts, of the so-called dossier that was released on Trump, put together by some former British intelligence guy. And they are, they, New York Times ran a story saying that, or that and that the officials were under investigation, right? That was, the, they were under investigation for their Russia ties. I'm actually conflating two stories. Pardon me. Forget what I said before about the Russia dossier. That there's a there's an active investigation. I actually brought something else into there. So scrap that one. Pardon me. There's an active investigation into the uh, Trump-Russia ties. And here's the way CNN reports this. The FBI rejected a recent White House request to publicly knock down media reports about communications between Donald Trump's associates and Russians known to U.S. intelligence during the 2016. Oh, no, I, I was I'm sorry. I was right. Forget that. Forget all that, like, second-guessing myself thing. I just try to be, unlike much of the fake news, I try to be accurate here. Uh, during the 2016 presidential campaign, multiple U.S. officials briefing the matter tell CNN. So here's—I know we've we got a lot of things here, and I could spend a whole hour on this, but we've got a lot of great guests today. It's freestyle, everybody. you got to strap in. We're going to cover a ton of ground. It's going to go by fast. So— CNN saying that White House tries to strong arm FBI into taking political sides in an argument by calling out the New York Times story as false. That's how this was reported. Another instance of a bullying bull in a China shop White House uh, that refuses to be uh, refuses to play by the rules, refuses to respect the First Amendment, all that stuff. Okay. That's how this is set up. Here's how the Wall Street Journal reports on it. Same story, same day. Reince Priebus sought FBI's help in refuting news report on Russian contacts. And the White House dismisses suggestions of inappropriate interaction with law enforcement agency. So the White House says, and this is the way it's reported in the Wall Street Journal, the White House says, yeah, we talked to the FBI. The FBI called us and said this whole thing about the... Intercepts of communications, once again, classified stuff, is that what we're talking about? You know, it's the Intel deep state lashing out once again. Remember, it's only a part of the Intel community. There are, the Intel community is overwhelmingly patriots. I can't speak to the federal bureaucracy. That's so vast, and I would assume considerably more left of center than the Intel community. Intel community has a lot of former military and a lot of current military in it when you add the well, it depends on which intel uh, agencies we're talking about specifically. But even CIA, which is a civilian agency, has a lot of former military in it. You know, we bring on, I mean, I had former, you know, former Marines I was working with. I mean, that's that's nothing surprising at all. So, uh, but that they would put this story out there. I mean, anyway, so that's the deep state conversation, a whole separate thing. But the White House says that the FBI reached out to them. And the FBI said this story about phone calls between Trump and the Russians is false. And the White House responds, well, can you come out and say that? Because anonymous sources are using you, using the FBI in an investigation into these alleged phone calls to diminish and demean senior White House administration officials. So can you just weigh in on this? And the FBI said, look, we wish we could, but we can't get involved in this political back and forth. Now, this is all what's been reported. Now, the FBI is not having an official statement on this. 
but they're saying we wish we could, but we can't. We can't do that. Which do you think is a more likely situation? Which scenario strikes you as more plausible? That the White House is trying to call out the FBI and force a senior FBI official into getting political on an issue that it doesn't matter what the truth is. They're just going to force the FBI or that the FBI is like, look, we don't like being pulled into this stuff. Just so you know, that's not true. What the, what the New York Times reported is not accurate. We are not looking into we're not investigating these phone calls. That is not based in fact. And is that those were lies. The sources that that spread that to The New York Times were not telling the truth. Um, but we don't think that we should be in the middle of this publicly. I just find the latter to be a more compelling storyline. And what's interesting here is, once again, somebody's lying. I I can't definitively tell you who it is, but I think you can tell who I think is lying. And in this case, uh, the story of a White House that is running roughshod over the FBI strikes me as very unlikely. And I also think it's interesting that the FBI was the organization that the left has been the hardest on for being pro-Trump and anti-Hillary all along, right? The FBI has been blamed, blamed, and Comey by name has been blamed by Democrats for Hillary's loss. So which is it? Are are we to believe that the FBI is a pro-Trump organization? And part of the problem here is that no organization is one or the other. There's so many people in these places. They're so big. They have a, a... dominant internal culture and an ethos that may skew right or left. And my sense is the FBI, because it's a law enforcement organization and because it deals with good guys and bad guys and knows what bad guys are and what they do, tends to be more right-leaning, tends to be more conservative. And the State Department, which has a lot of people that come out of master's programs in international affairs, which are just factories of progressive groupthink and U.N. worship. Oh, the United Nations can fix any problem. Let's, I have an idea, let's have a summit where we get together world leaders and we'll all be friends. It's not really how the world works, unfortunately, but a lot of people, and of of course they always, there's a a class aspect to it too. Those who, I I know people will point out to me, what about Mormon missionaries who go around the world and they speak languages and some of them go work for the government? Uh, This is, none of this is set in stone or absolute, but Generally speaking, if you can, uh, if you're going to be somebody who has overseas experience and can pay for a master's degree, you know, you tend to at least be a upper upper middle class and aspiring to go even higher. So you get this culture at the State Department in Foggy Bottom of you know some liberal liberal arts snobs bouncing around in there. I'm not saying it's everybody, but it's a fair amount of them. So the State Department skews left. Is what I'm trying to say, but we've been told the FBI skews right, and here you'd have the administration. Uh, requesting, but making an inappropriate request, they're telling us, of the FBI. Well, if the FBI told the administration and the administration just said, well, can you you weigh in on this one way or the other, then uh, that doesn't seem to be inappropriate to me at all. Let me put it another way. If the FBI director can step in front of the American people to specifically say, not just that Hillary Clinton will not face charges in that investigation, but that, and I quote, no reasonable prosecutor, end quote, would bring charges against Hillary Clinton. If they can step into that and the left can say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's not a, 
That's not going above and beyond. That seems quite normal to me. That is, that is, un- we want to talk about unprecedented. That is unprecedented. If they can do that, why can't they say this report, this thinly, anonymously sourced report to the New York Times about Trump officials? Remember, Trump officials being traitors. That is the accusation. They are accusing Donald Trump and his senior advisors. Perhaps they're implicit, perhaps uh, implicitly doing it. Perhaps they're, uh, there's a bit of subterfuge. They are accusing them of being traitors to their country, of betraying the United States, undermining its most important institutions in order to I, I, that's in order in order to win the election. That's quite a gamble when everybody thinks that Donald Trump. Remember, this would have been last uh, the summer before the election last summer. When everybody thinks Trump is going to lose, except for, you could say, I guess, Trump and his advisors, but even some of them, I'm sure, had their doubts. They figured, well, let's let's hang out with our friends, the Russians, and they'll hack into Podesta's emails and we'll find such great stuff in there that it'll it'll sway the election. That's really that's the storyline. I got to say, I mean, why would why would they take the risk? Why would they go through all of that and entrust their future to the Russians? I mean, say what you will about some of these Trump advisors, but I don't think they really believe that the Russians are across the board, good guys, trustworthy, and the Russian government is going to play nice here. But this is the stuff you hear. Anyway, the way that this has all been reported, though, you see the breakdown with the media on left and right. And this is why every organization should just have to be honest. We are pro-Trump. We are anti-Trump. No more of this fake, oh, we're not fake news, but we always push against one side stuff. More coming up. Buck is back. Hey, everybody. Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. Welcome back, everybody. Freedom Hut is a rockin'. We're joined by our friend Rebecca Heinrichs now. She's a fellow at the Hudson Institute specializing in nuclear deterrence, missile defense, and counterproliferation. She's got a great piece up on nationalreview.com as well. I recommend to you all. Rebecca, thanks for making some time on a Friday. Thank you, Buck. Happy all right, let's, let's start, if you don't mind, with this uh, Trump, this Reuters piece that Trump wants to make sure U.S. arsenal at top of the pack. This is always then followed by... These breathless denunciations of Trump, the warmonger, he's going to he's going to end the world with his craziness and his nuclear nuclear race. Uh, That is obviously exaggerated. It's hyperbole. It's crazy. But that seems what most of the media thinks. What is true about our nuclear arsenal and whether it is at the top of the pack and what could be done to make it better? Sure. So it's a great question. I um, yeah, you're right. The arms control folks, as soon as as soon as this article came out, arms control folks kind of went nuts, and everybody was saying that, oh, my goodness, he's going to kick off another arms race with the Russians. And we just signed this treaty a few years ago, the New START Treaty, that caps both of our deployed strategic nuclear weapons at the same level. So, you know, we are at the top of the pack with Russia is basically what they say. Um, or they say ours is better anyway. We just have the same numbers capped. So why would he talk this way? The truth of the matter is um, – the New START Treaty that uh, President Obama negotiated with the Russians, uh, it, it is true that the numbers are capped at the, the same numbers, but there's so many loopholes in it that the Russians take advantage of that the United States doesn't. That's the first point. 
The second point is the Russians are totally modernizing their nuclear weapons. So their nuclear output for warheads, I mean, they can produce something like 2,000 warheads a year if they really wanted to. We do not have an active production facility to be able to do that. Um, so there is a discrepancy there. And then the third major point on this is the Russians refuse to uh, include their, their short-range tactical nuclear weapons, lower-yield nuclear weapons, in the treaty. And they outnumber the U.S. 10 to 1 with those kind of nuclear weapons. So when President Trump says, no, I want our nuclear force to be second to none, I want it to be the best, I don't want us to be beholden to treaties that benefit the other guy and don't benefit us, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I wouldn't recommend scrapping the treaty, but I would recommend improving it, closing loopholes. Um, and if the Russians don't abide by the treaty, obviously, then you get out of a treaty if you're the only one following it. Um, but what he said was not crazy. It's not going to start an arms race. Um, and uh, it just this is sort of general overreaction that you hear from those who are already opposing the president. What do you say and how do you explain to people who just want to have a, a basic understanding of the, uh, the the security implications of our nuclear arsenal, I, I can see people saying, "Well, do we? Why do we need thousands of nuclear weapons in the first place? We we've only used them twice, and it was a long time ago. And if we have right. if we have a hundred, you know, if we have a hundred nukes on submarines, and uh, you know, maybe a few ICBMs here and there, just because that seems like enough of a deterrent. Why do we need? Why do we have to have either parity or superiority over Russia on this one issue?" when clearly they're not crazy enough to challenge us, right? I mean, that seems to me to be the argument that both people who are honestly expert in this but take the very anti-nuclear uh, side of it, anti-nuclear weapon side of it, believe is what they say. And normal people that just walk across on the street say the same thing. That, right. And, no, it's a great question. Um, the, the, the answer, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated question, but the answer is we're trying to deter mass war, mass casualty war, and so when you're deterring, you're talking about this sort of very complex chess game, mind game. It has to do with psychology. Um, so it's not just as simple as math. Well, we've got enough nuclear weapons to make a really big boom. Isn't that enough? You have to – we also provide a nuclear umbrella to our allies. Um, and so, you know, you need to have them assured. If they're not assured of their own nuclear protection and what the United States can do to protect them, they're going to get their own nuclear weapons, and that would be a bad thing for global stability. Um, and the, the Russians, um, you know, they're building different kinds of nuclear weapons. And so the kinds of nuclear weapons we need to have need to, to make sense compared to what the Russians have. So only a handful of nuclear weapons just won't make sense. We have to give the president, a, you know, a big menu of options if he's ever in the circumstance where he has to threaten the use of these things. So it's far more complicated than just a basic math equation is what I tell folks. And again, the whole point of nuclear weapons is that we don't ever want to actually employ them. Um, but we do use them every single day by deterring their use, if that makes sense. So, yeah. you know, I, you know, I always tell folks, you know, you always think they're, they're expensive. They're really not for the insurance they provide the United States. They really do provide stability. Um, and so you want to make sure that you have a nuclear force that actually poses a credible threat to the enemy. And that normally, I mean, that includes a lot more with a bunch of different kinds of nuclear weapons. Here's what Trump said on this issue. We have the audio play it. Be wonderful. It would be, it would be wonderful. A dream would be that no country would have nukes. But if countries are going to have nukes, we're going to be at the top of the pack. That doesn't seem like crazy or warmongering to me. I know it doesn't to you either. But the, the, the response that I saw 
from some uh, national security experts out there who I think believe that they have a a particularly potent uh, intellectual assault on this presidency, that, that they're the vanguard of the anti-Trump resistance in some sense because of Trump on national security as such. He's so flawed and everything else. Anyway, I, I want to move on to your national review piece, the left's blatant hypocrisy on it in, on a Russia and Iran. You uh, say this in your in your subtitle, and I've been hammering this as well. Uh, Obama obsequiously courted the Russians, but only Trump is called a traitor. That is important for everyone to hear because that is what much of the media, a lot of Democrats openly, Maxine Waters has been saying it openly. Others have either said it uh, in a sort of roundabout fashion or openly. They're calling the president and his top advisors traitors. They're saying that they can't be trusted with classified information because they're going to give it to Russia. Meanwhile, when it comes to Obama and Russia, we never hear anything, but it wasn't so good, was it? Oh, it's terrible. I mean, this is a this is a president. I mean, president Obama came into office. If you if you I went back and looked at some of the quotes that he said about the Russians and the media reported it as, you know, that he was being complimentary. And, you know, when when Trump says something nice about Putin, it's flattery. So there's a difference in the, in the language that's used even describing the way they try to you know describe and talk to um, Russian leaders. But if you look at what President Obama did, I mean, this is a guy who I mean, he scrapped our defensive missile defense site that we were planning on putting in Poland and the Czech Republic to protect the United States and NATO from Iranian ballistic missiles. Russians hated it. He got rid of it. But there's, this, there's other um, treaties you know, where Russia was violating, the INF Treaty. That's another arms control treaty. Uh, the Obama administration kept that from Congress. They didn't want Congress to know about it because they wanted Congress to agree to another treaty with the Russians. Um, and then when it came to Iran, I mean, we, we've been over backwards to give the Iranians whatever they wanted for this Iran deal um, and and been over backwards to do what the Russians wanted with the Iran deal. Um, and nobody said a word about it. And and so, you know, you saw again and again, the Obama administration capitulated, gave into, gave the Russians what they wanted. Um, and it, it was always the detriment of the United States, always benefited Russia or Iran. And the media never called them on it. And so I just find it pretty tiring um, when it seems to me like there's a bit of a witch hunt right now with the media and the Trump administration looking for inappropriate relations and cooperation with the Russians. Rebecca Heinrichs is a fellow at the Hudson Institute. She specializes in nuclear deterrence and missile defense. Rebecca, great to have you. Have a uh, fantastic week, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Pat. You too. Phones are open, 844-900-2825. Buck Sexton with America Now continues in just a few minutes. All right, Team Buck, phones are open, lines are lit up. Let's take some. We've got... uh, Jason in Arizona, you're on the Buck Sexton show. Uh, Shield tie, Buck. Shield tie. Anyways, I got a, I have a movie quote for you, and uh, I'm gonna lay the situation. I'm not gonna go. Wait, wait, can, can I just tell everyone? Some people listening probably don't know that we have a thing in the Freedom Hut where on Fridays, if people want to try to stump me on the spot with an action movie quote, it has to be an action movie though. It can't just be some random movie someone likes. They, and it has to be oh, a quote is. that is worth rem- has to be a quote that is worth remembering. No, Jason, I'm just setting the scene for everybody listening. Uh, we do action movie quote Friday. So here we go. What do you got? Okay, I'm going to lay down the situation, the scenario, real quick. I'm not going to get into too much details because it's obvious. It's like one of the top ten greats. Anyways, there's a group of people in an abandoned building. One of the persons dies, and the other person runs up to him and says, "Not like this." No, not like this. Go. Um, the Matrix. 
Oh, you got it. All right. Way to go, man. Yeah. That's and amazing. I got that on the spot. Oh, no. I can't even type that fast. What's up? Action movie quote, master, Buck Sexton. Ninth yeah, degree black belt in action I movie quotes. I give it to you. Now, I got a question about Kami Bear. Uh, do you think it's possible Kami Bear can come on and maybe uh, give us some insight and all this nonsense? With, I mean, I, th- uh, I, think, I think we're going to have to. I'm getting a lot of requests for Kami Bear. Again, people that are that are, are new to uh, to the Freedom Hut don't know what we're doing. Like, Kami Bear? What is this kid smoking? Uh, but, yeah, there, there, there's some Kami Bear in the future, I think. we got to work on he will only come on if he has certain intro music and there's some production things we have to get going. But, yeah, that little that furry little Marxist, he might come join soon. He'll hang out. I, I feel like the American Now crowd is going to be down to hear from Kami Bear, especially with all the Russia stuff I'm going curious. on. I'm curious, Buck, uh, since we haven't heard from Kami Bear in a while, is it possible that maybe he's working behind the scenes with CNN? I can neither confirm nor deny that he's working on a uh, on a covert contract for CNN. I don't know. Could be. But Jason in Arizona, man, Shields High, thank you for calling in. And yeah. I got to say, that was a vague that was a vague quote he threw out there from the Matrix. But if you bring the Matrix into my if you bring the Matrix into my wheelhouse, you, you better be ready because that's a great one. And I've seen that one a lot. And it's also an action movie. I, 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 I love all of my of my team buck callers across the board. But I do find it kind of funny when people call in and they give me a quote that I don't get. And they're like, it's from Gone with the Wind. I'm like, that's not an action movie. I mean, there may be action in that movie, although I've only tried to watch it one time. True story. And I fell asleep at the very beginning. I was like, <sighs> you know, I know it's a timeless classic. And I'm also going to tell you something. I'm going to share a slightly unpopular opinion with you right now. I think that everybody is led to believe that black and white movies just have more artistic value. A lot of black and white movies are just boring. They're just boring. Uh, the acting is indicating, not acting. Those of you who have taken a beginning actors or beginners acting class know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of indicating, not a lot of acting. They might as well be reading off of cue cards in a lot of the earlier movies. I know, black and white is supposed to be so much better. If you disagree with me on this, why don't you try? Why don't you bring it into the Freedom Hut? Let's let's have it out on air. And also, if there are any liberals listening right now, uh, and you want to fight. Call, please, because I've I've been a little grouchy today, and I would love to argue with somebody. So I will be polite, but if you want to argue on anything I've said, now is your time to call in and go, oh, anytime, actually. But today in particular, I want to roll up the sleeves, and uh, we might have to bust out the buck slap. So we have Mark in Mississippi on WBUV. Mark, good to hear from you again. How you doing? I'm all right. Good to be on uh, first time calling. Oh, I'm sorry. There's another Mark from Mississippi that called earlier, but great to have you, Mark, from Mississippi. Oh, wow. Okay. I missed that one, but uh, I've enjoyed the program since it's been uh, coming on. I catch you on the ride home from work and uh, appreciate what you're doing and appreciate your uh, service to the country. Uh, awesome program. Thank you so much, I, sir. I, please, please tell your friends. Tell all your friends, conservative or liberal, both. Oh, uh, we've got a bunch here in Mississippi, so. <laughs> okay, uh, sounds good. <laughs> we, get a, we get in. Mark, can I ask you a question, actually, before you ask me a question? If I wanted to take, yeah. uh, if I want to take the girlfriend for uh, a long weekend in Mississippi, where is the best place to go for a weekend for a visitor in Mississippi? Where we live in uh, Biloxi and Ocean Springs. Uh, I don't personally gamble, but we have the. Uh, casinos. We have uh, great restaurants. We're right on the beach, 
and Ocean Springs. Um, All right. right. I sound like I work for the Mississippi Tourism Board now, but I was just wondering. I've never been to Mississippi. I'm curious. So, Mark, what's yeah. your, thank, you for your, uh, thank you for your insider knowledge there. What's your question? Um, well, I, have, I just have a comment, and uh, the, the Trump candidacy to me uh, has really brought a uh, clear divide in the news. It's no more uh, having to read through uh, things to uh, understand the opinion, uh, regardless of whether uh, Trump is telling the truth or not. I believe he won. I personally believe that he's sincere in telling the truth, and I believe he won. Uh, uh, and the Trump crowd believes that he is. Uh, my comment is just like the election where the uh, media was giving him all sorts of press and he often talked about it that he didn't have to spend his money because they were doing the work for him. Um, this is a classic, to me, a classic example today of the FBI not wanting to uh, put out the story uh, on the news or to uh, combat. Um, so, what Mark, happened- I need your help here. Do I have a, is this a question or is it a statement? No, it's just a it's just a comment for you, and I'll get your opinion. But uh, Ryan, so Street, give me give me the distilled version of the comment. I need like a two liner here. Okay, it's going to come right now. Trump plays the media so that when the FBI is not going to put the word out, it gets out to the media. The media thinks that they're going to harm Trump by giving the news, and all they're doing is emboldening the Trump crowd. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so Mark, I, I hear you now. I, I got to say, I think that the, the point you're making is one that I believe I've I've alluded to or or made in some detail. Actually, now that I think about it, before, which is that Trump is great at counterpunching, and in in a sense, uh, I think this White House is really comfortable in that role. They don't, they're not they don't play defense because he goes on offense, but they like it when the media attacks first, and then you know he can throw a haymaker back at them. And that changes the whole dynamic of the news cycle. And at least for those who support Trump or or for Republicans, they win every time they do that, meaning every time the media goes after them and then they and then they throw a a punch back as they as I say, as they counterpunch or counterstrike. That is a win, uh, in my opinion, a win for the administration in the eyes of everybody that is center and right. Now, if you hate Trump, you hate Trump no matter what he does. That doesn't really matter. Um, exactly. Yeah, no, but I think he's done a. I think last week was was amazing with Trump. Not this past week, but the one before, or you know, going into the weekend, where you saw very right. negative. And Mark uh, Shield Time, man, thank you for calling in on a Mississippi's WBUV. Uh, very negative stories and and also the very negative analysis of where the administration was. This was right when the Flynn resignation happened, and of course the res- resignation was asked for, which is a polite firing. They thought that they had really created a momentum, I think, to uh, do damage, lasting damage to the administration. And then Trump gave that press conference and just slapped down the media and then gave a really rousing speech at Melbourne or in Melbourne, Florida. Um, I thought he did a really good job. So and also had that guy come on from the from the crowd and everybody was just fired up. So this is. This is the gift that keeps on giving for the Trump administration. Every time the media goes after them unfairly, everyone who's at least open to the idea of a successful Trump administration and who sees the media for what it is says, 
Wow. They really are dishonest. There really is a lot of fake news. And I, I put myself in that category. I am I am feeling more pro-Trump with time, mostly because I see, one, he's kept some major promises, Gorsuch, uh, Gorsuch uh, for Supreme Court, and, and there's others I could point to as well, but mostly because the people who hate him are exactly the kind of people that I want the administration calling out. Our three is already here, Team Buck. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. All right, team, welcome back into the Freedom Hut. Very much uh, pleased to have you here with me. Thank you very much for your time. Got one more call I want to take here because he's been waiting for a long time. Frank in Louisiana, WBUV. What's up, Frank? Give me a little background on the report about the FBI and Trump and what they, what Trump can't so wanted them to report. Well, what the story was is the gentleman from the FBI initiated a conversation with the gentleman in the Trump camp and was reporting to him that they've made a report that they have found no evidence of Trump and the Russians doing anything to affect the election. So the gentleman from the Trump camp said, well, why don't you make that public? You know, we have the media on our butt. Why don't you make that public? Well, of course, you know, there's so much, so many Obama people in the FBI and they have a political agenda. They're not going to initiate to make a report public to defend Trump. Of course not. That's not what they, you know, that's not what liberals do, you know, when it doesn't fit their agenda. And the story, the way it was written, it's in there, but you have to dig for it. And, of course, you know, they mislead the public with the, with the headline and all that. So that's basically the story behind how the media takes this stuff and makes it propaganda. I, I know. Now they realize, <laughs> realize that they, they, they can't flat out lie because Trump's called them out that on the sources, unnamed sources and all that. So now they just twist the language like liberals always do. And you know, make it make it uh, more uh, pro to their agenda. It's ridiculous. Yeah, well, th- that's uh, what I. That's why I read the initial CNN report because it made it seem like. I mean, if you read that report on CNN, you came out of it thinking that the White House had done something wrong. It, exactly. it wasn't that there was the possibility, or the, you know, you need to look at this a little bit more. Um, it was that there was uh, real wrongdoing on the part of the White House, that they were trying to strong arm or bully the FBI into the middle of a political fight. But now I'm actually seeing, and, and uh, Frank, uh, thanks for calling in from Louisiana. I'm actually seeing this on Yahoo News right now that James Comey, uh, the FBI director, is facing pressure because the White House is fighting these reports on Russia. And I, I think that the only way that this goes away is if the investigations are allowed to continue, if we are allowed to look into this, uh, if the people that not here's a few things, a few thoughts on this. First of all, even if the investigations go forward, there will be people and some of them are the loudest voices you are hearing right now uh, in favor of these investigations. They will not be They will never be satisfied with the extent and detail of these uh, 
inquiries, if we were to borrow a term from Hillary Clinton, it's security inquiry. No, it was an FBI investigation into your server, Hillary. But these investigations may never be sufficient, uh, may never be sufficient in order to placate these critics. But I think that you have to have them because people who do have honest questions about it will be able, once there is more, more facts that are out there, will be able to say, all right, we looked into this Russia stuff. Can you stop calling the president and his top advisors traitors for Russia? Why would they do that? Why would they betray their country for Russia? What do they get out of this? Oh, they were that, they were that, never mind if, if, if you think that they have the kind of uh, lack of morals that they would use Russia to win the election. They really think that that could help them win, that that would be the deciding factor? That Russian interference by getting involved in Podesta's emails and leaking some DNC emails, that was going to be the difference maker in Ohio, Pennsylvania, I'm sorry, in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin? Really? That's that's quite a gift of prognostication. They must have a really good crystal ball to know that and to take tremendous risks, possibly even risk their freedom for that. Hmm. No, I don't think so. Do we have Brandon? Um, no. Okay. So uh, I just want to go forward on this and, and work through a couple of the different angles. Uh, the angles here are that if we in, allow this investigation to continue and then we get the facts out there, we'll also be able to address the concerns that Trump is uh, that, that and I don't know how much of this comes from people that truly believe that Trump is a traitor to his country. That is what they are saying. But if we allow it to go forward, then at least we have the ability to turn around and say, okay, it's happened. I don't know if the investigations will ever really end. That's another, you, you, Once you start these things, they take on a life of their own. And I know that the left would say, the response to this will be, well, look at what was done to Hillary with Benghazi. But there were, there were plenty of things we found out during the Benghazi investigation that were not known before and that I think were very relevant. And it was just a shame that they were able to delay for so long those necessary facts from public disclosure. Let's just go over some of them first, because this is the comparison that will be made. It's already been made, but I promise you, going forward with the Russia investigations, because it will be relentless and they'll continue on and on, uh, I think it might be good because some facts will come out that will be helpful for those of us who are looking at this honestly. But with Hillary and Benghazi, uh, we found out that there was... Uh, there were many unanswered requests for additional security that she went up to the father of one of the fallen former SEALs and said, you know, we're going to get the guy who made the video. I mean, that didn't come out from the investigation that came out from the family, but uh, it came out that she emailed Hillary. I mean, uh, emailed Chelsea right afterwards to say this was a terrorist act. That was all quite clear. And, and she had Susan Rice go on the Sunday morning shows to lie about it and say that it was a protest. So that all was that was worthwhile information for the American people to know. And it's just a shame that it took so long, because by the time we really had some clarity on what happened with regard to Hillary's uh, dereliction of duty as secretary of state in the protection of a diplomatic facility in Benghazi and the loss of a U.S. ambassador because of that lack of security and the dereliction of duty to provide the security, uh, all of that. Uh, it just took too long for it to come out, and so I don't think it had the political impact that it should have. But with Trump and Russia, I I will have—I'm I'm planning on having some conservative uh, believers in the 
Trump Kremlin nexus on the show because I really want to hear from them. I want to hear from them on what they really think is going to come out of all of this. We're going to find out what exactly. We're going to find out that Paul Manafort, maybe, or one of the other individuals who's been named specifically, um, that's a former Trump aide during the campaign, worked with Russian intelligence to specifically target. Remember, they were targeting, they looked targeted the RNC. They targeted a lot of people. Uh, the, the cyber hacking is a reality in day-to-day life for companies, corporations, governments. The theft of intellectual property, including classified and just commercial secrets as well, that has occurred through cyber espionage is on an order of magnitude that it's nothing that we've seen uh, of, of a similar order of magnitude since the Cold War. I think that is fair to say, and I think that it'll it'll take some time, but there will be a recognition among the American people that that is all true. But what do we really think is happen- has happened here? That Trump was willing to work with the Russian or Trump advisors, with his say-so, of course, that's what we're supposed to believe, we're willing to work with the Russians to, th- to throw an election? Uh and keep in mind, they didn't even get full access to Hillary's emails, right? So they're going to go after Podesta's emails. It's just, it just doesn't add up. There are some things, you know. We, again, if we're going to do the Benghazi, the Benghazi versus Trump Russia comparison, uh, why would the administration, in the weeks before, if we're going to go to motivation here, in the weeks before the election, the administration? has a major terrorist attack on uh, two U.S. facilities. One one kills a U.S. ambassador, three other brave Americans serving their country, uh, Glenn Doherty, Ty Woods, and Sean Smith. They're serving their country. They're all killed. Ambassador Stevens is killed. And the administration's primary narrative for re-election at the time, the Obama administration, with Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, is General Motors is alive and bin Laden is dead. We were better at terrorism than Bush. You can trust Democrats on national security now. We understand the threat. We face the threat. That's our narrative. Well, when you have a burned down U.S. facility, uh, with the special mission compound, not the annex, but the special mission compound, uh, still smoldering and the whole debacle of no uh, no assistance from outside of Libya showing up. No, you all know the story. But that uh, should have mattered more to the American people, I think, when it came to voting. But it clearly was a concern for the Obama administration and for Hillary Clinton, who already knew she was going to run later on. And her secretary of state tenure was the most important resume bullet that she was going to have. So, of course, they wanted to slow roll the narrative, say that it was about a protest, say that anything you have to say other than, Big terrorist attack, jihadists overran a facility, killed a bunch of Americans serving their country, and we were, you know, we being the senior leadership, the State Department, the uh, Commander in Chief Obama himself, were unwilling to do what was necessary. Because remember, we didn't know how long the firefight was going to last. We didn't know if the annex compound was going to be overrun, and we still don't know what happened in those hours afterwards with Obama and where he went. And you know, the, this is. And everyone I've talked, and I've talked to people, I mean, I've I've talked to people that have uh, access to what was going on that night, and I've also uh, 
you know, had on Chris Peranto and talked to him before about what he think happened that night. Anyway, that was all understandable why they would, when I say understandable, I don't mean okay, but you understand the motive. You understand the motivation here with Benghazi and why there were lies told about it. The motivation with Trump and Russia is what exactly? He's a billionaire. He doesn't need any money. How? I mean, how much money would Russia, think about this, how much money, if you were worth billions, I don't know how many billions, depends on what the Trump brand is worth, and that's a, a bit of an open question, but if you were worth a few billion dollars, how much would someone have to give you for you to possibly destroy your entire reputation, your family's reputation, possibly lose your freedom, and sell out your country? You, I know you're sitting there saying, well, Buck, there's, I, I, I'm, you know, if you're like me and you're worth like, like th- thousands of dollars, um, you would say, well, there's no number. It doesn't matter if I, it doesn't matter if I'm a billion dollars in debt. There's no number that they could buy me off. And I'd say to you, exactly. But it's even easier if you're a billionaire. So pressure against Trump has to be what? The pressure would have to be something that is so profoundly humiliating and demeaning that, again, he would sell out his country. What could that be? What are you going to have on Trump that's going to make? I I don't think that they got anything that could do that. So now you get to the lower level advisors. Well, maybe they were desperate to for a win here. So their big plan was to work with Russia, expose themselves to the possibility that the Russians would, of course, use this as leverage against them down the line. They would expose themselves to that and all for what? So we could see some Podesta emails that were a little embarrassing. And think about how how many months into the campaign this is that all that happened. Well, they were they were colluding with Russia all along. It just does. I'm sorry. It just doesn't add up. But if facts come out that contradict my point of view on this, I'll be happy to sit here and talk to you about it. Eight four four nine zero zero two eight two five on the lines. Team Buck will be back right after this break. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut team. We've got Brandon Judd joining us now. He's president of the National Border Patrol Council. He represents more than 16,000 Border Patrol agents. Brandon, thank you for calling us. Buck, how are you doing? I'm good, man. Give us the sense uh, that you have of morale among border agents since Trump took office. What are they saying? What's it feel like? Uh, very excited. Uh, since November 8th, uh, there's been there's been a, a buzz in the Border Patrol that I've never seen in nearly 20 years as an agent. Um, very excited to do our job. And what do you? What, why is this such a change uh, from the Obama era? What was it like for border agents trying to do their jobs and enforce immigration law at our southern border when President Obama was in office? Because you know we keep hearing people say now, "Oh, Obama was the deporter in chief. He deported so many people." Well, what what did it feel like for border agents? Did they feel like they were supported? Were there where were where was all that? No, we we, we weren't supported in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it was the. Uh... It was, the, it was the policies of the Obama administration which caused the immigration problems that we faced. Uh, when, you, when you promise to release 90 to 95 percent of those individuals that cross the border illegally, you're just going to create that magnet that is going to um, pull people to the United States. And unfortunately, it pulled them to the United States illegally. It's not like these individuals tried to cross the, the border legally. They crossed the border knowingly, meaningfully, and purposefully. They, they did it illegally. Um, and when we arrested them, instead of uh, processing them and holding them um, until they saw a judge for, for a deportation proceeding, uh, all we did was just let them go and walk them out our front door. And that was, a, that was a specific Obama administration policy, and that was different from what, the, what his predecessor, the Bush administration, had in place. Is that fair? Or at least different from what Trump is doing now? 
Well, it's very different from what Trump is doing now. Um, the, the, the Bush administration, they did a little bit of it. We, they we weren't great on the border. No, they weren't. They weren't. We, we, we call it the catch and release policy. Um, you know, we've heard a lot about uh, President Trump has even made mention of catch and release on, on several occasions, but we call it catch and release. Um, we arrest individuals for breaking the law. Um, and, and in essence, what we do is we, we end up rewarding them because we just let them go. And they end up, you know, in, in our cities, in Boston, Atlanta, um, you know, they just end up going to, to wherever they want to go in the country. And, and in essence, they disappear. So when you hear these 10 million people that are in the shadows, well, we put them in the shadows by letting them go instead of holding them until they had their deportation proceedings and, and having a judge determine what needed to be done, we just let them go. And the Trump administration, they promised to, to end the catch and release. In fact, they have. Um, we do not release anybody anymore. Um, every individual that we arrest, we take into custody, we, and we hold them, and we turn them over to ICE, and ICE is to hold them pending um, their initial appearance before a judge. Do Border Patrol agents think a wall or a barriers and increased security, physical security measures at the border, do they believe it will work? It's not just that we believe. We know it will. And the reason why we know that is because they have in the past. Um, if you've ever been to San Diego, California, or Nogales, um, or El Paso, Texas, and you've seen the barriers that we have, the, the fences that we have, the double, the double fencing that we have, those have all worked. Uh, the problem is, is, is they can be defeated, but they have served their purpose. A wall will be that much better. So, so absolutely, um, a wall uh, will free up our resources to allow us to patrol areas that we otherwise couldn't patrol because we have to be in, in the urban areas where it's very easy for uh, individuals to, to evade apprehension and, and escape arrest. Um, so, yeah, a wall, again, it's not that we believe we know a wall will work. And what do you think about the rest of the uh, the D the guidance that came down from DHS earlier in the week about the expansion of uh, who would be considered priority for deportation? Are Border Patrol agents, uh, they feel like they've been given back discretion and this is a good enforcement measure? We do. We do. And, and a, a lot of that has to do with, with the deterrent factor. Um, since, since President Trump has taken office, we've already seen a huge decrease in our busiest sector, the Rio Grande Valley, Texas sector, we've already seen a huge decrease in illegal crossing um, ever since he, he took office. And so the promise that the laws will be enforced has already played a, a, a huge impact in the number of people that are willing to cross the border illegally right now. So, again, it's the anti-magnet. You, you had the magnet, which was the Obama administration, promising these individuals that if they cross the border illegally, we're going to let them go. Now you have to promise that if you cross the border illegally, the laws will be enforced properly and you will be held for deportation proceedings. And that has already had a huge deterrent effect, which, again, just raises the morale of, of our aid. Brandon Judd is president of the National Border Patrol Council. Brandon, thank you very much for joining. We'll have you back soon if you'll come join us. Thanks, Buck. I appreciate it. Will do. And team, the phone lines are open, uh, 844-900-2825. Also, we are on iTunes as well as the iHeartRadio app. You can subscribe on iTunes. Just type in Buck Sexton on iTunes, and you will download this show every day, which sounds great to me. It's totally free. You'll love it.
Check it out. I do it. I subscribe to myself. I'll have you know. Back right after this break. Buck is back. Hey, everybody. Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. A brazen assassination in a crowded airport with security cameras all over the place. People nearby watching as it happened. The half-brother of North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un murdered by a couple of agents of North Korea. Well, now we know what the murder weapon was. VX gas. For those of you that remember the phenomenally entertaining, if completely improbable and in some ways bizarre movie, The Rock, VX gas was uh, was used in that to hold the city of San Francisco hostage, although the way that VX worked in that movie is not how it works in real life. Perhaps too much detailed discussion for another time. But what does all this mean about North Korea? Why would they use VX gas in this assassination? Or VX chemical, I should say, not gas. Uh, we're joined now by Gordon Chang. He's a Forbes contributor and author of The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon, I know you've been super busy today. I've been seeing you all over the place on the TV. Thanks for making the time. Oh, thank you so much, Buck. I really appreciate the opportunity. Great to have you. So, okay, VX, this is this is wow. Even for even for North Korea, I think people are like, whoa, that's pretty intense. Well, this really surprised me, and I've certainly been studying the Kim Jong-nam assassination, but I was taken completely aback that they would use VX, which, after all, is considered a weapon of mass destruction. And what they're basically saying, I guess, is that, uh, look, we only killed one person this time, but we'll be willing to kill a lot more people with this chemical agent. Yeah, I was going to ask what message you've given us. That's a message I would think also that— uh, they've got this is a way, in a sense, of use it's a demonstration and a reminder that they have this chemical weapon to the whole world because there are much easier ways uh, to, to kill somebody than to use VX. I mean, they got up to they got close to this guy, obviously, silenced pistols. I mean, there's a we could sit here and talk about all the different uh, methodologies that could have been deployed here, but using VX has to be it reminds me of when, uh, when the Russians, oh, yeah, the Russians used, what was it, polonium, an isotope of polonium uh, to yes. kill a Kremlin a defector in the U.K., that also sent a very clear message, which was, you know, if you mess with us, the Russians, we'll make sure that a radioactive isotope eats you from the inside out. Using VX, it causes involuntary muscle contractions that speed up and, and cause imminent death. This is really nasty stuff. Well, it is. And it's a reminder that the North Koreans not only have nuclear weapons with long-range ballistic missiles, which they haven't been able to mate yet, but they'll be able to do that soon. But not only do they have nukes and missiles, but they've also got chemical and biological weapons. And so that has, you know, they've got big arsenals of that and do a lot of damage in the first hours of a war on the Korean Peninsula. And so there's, it's a reminder, I assume, then, to everybody from the North Korean government. The North Korean government is, of course, saying this is all a fabrication, right? That, they have, that, that they're publicly proclaiming they have no hand in this whatsoever, which I know nobody believes outside of North Korea, but that is their official posture. Yes. And there's really nobody else with a motive for killing Kim Jong-nam. Also, you know, we've got so many North Korean connections. Uh, first of all, the seven or so people that Malaysia is trying to find, these are the people between the perpetrators and the mastermind. These guys are all North Koreans. They've already got one North Korean in custody. And as I mentioned, there's just a motive here that nobody else would have for killing this guy. 
And so now, where does, does this have any result? I mean, I, I, how much more? How many more sanctions and diplomatic anx- actions and demarches and such can we do that try to get at this issue? Speaking of which, by the way, the Chinese have uh, said. I think this was just earlier today that uh, the nuclear problem with North Korea is a problem between the U.S. and North Korea and the Chinese government saying they don't want to be involved. Yeah, well, that, that's their con- consistent position. I'm not surprised that they took that today. I mean, what they're trying to do essentially is to help North Korea because if they can frame it in this way, they can get themselves off the hook for supplying the North Koreans with all sorts of technologies, monies, and, of course, diplomatic support. There could be no North Korean uh, nuclear weapons program or ballistic missile program were it not for Chinese assistance. Is there any concern, uh, legitimate concern, you think, Gordon, within the uh, the upper reaches of the of the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party? I mean, I just everyone knows that North Korea is really the international community's hobgoblin boogeyman. I mean, this is there's no country on the planet like it. There's no. Nothing that is as close to a pure totalitarianism as the North Korean state. And it's obviously erotic. They just assassinated the uh, the premier's half-brother. Is there concern in the upper reaches of the Chinese government that if they were to ratchet up the pressure on North Korea, that, that the nuclear missiles they have, the VX gas, might actually be directed against China? Is, is that—I mean, South Korea lives with the constant real anxiety— of, of war again with North Korea. Do the Chinese worry, or what's, what's their sense of where this goes? I think that Chinese analysts do worry, and that worry is legitimate. But nonetheless, where it counts at the Politburo Standing Committee and the upper reaches of the People's Liberation Army, they continue their support for North Korea because there's certain short-term advantages that Beijing gets from having the North Koreans loose Um, Because basically what they do is they keep us off balance. They get us to go to Beijing and ask for help every time that there is a North Korean provocation. So Beijing gets benefits out of this. So although the North Koreans have disrespected China by killing Kim Jong-nam, who was under protection of Beijing, although all of that, they still support the North Korean regime. What concrete steps can we take that aren't already being done or that aren't standing long-term U.S. policy uh, vis-a-vis North Korea that might punish them in a way that they, or or convince them, coerce them to change their behavior? Well, first of all, the sanctions on North Korea are not airtight. There's a lot more that we could do on direct sanctions. But the thing that I think that would have the most effect is to tell the Chinese that we're serious. And we do that by unplugging Chinese banks from the global financial system for their participation in illicit commerce of North Korean entities. I know that that would rock global markets, but it would tell China that we, for the first time in decades, are indeed serious about protecting the American homeland. And that really is a failing of the Bush administration and the Obama administration for not doing that. So you think that the way to get to North Korea is to go after China in a manner that a lot of people would say is is pretty radical. Is that fair, Gordon? I think it is radical. But on the other hand, when you have some American city that's a radioactive slab after being hit by a North Korean missile, it won't do for an American president to say, oh, I could have stopped this, but I didn't want to anger the Chinese. We are three, four, maybe five years away from the North Koreans being able to put a nuke on a long-range ballistic missile and hit an American city. Do you, think, done- that, do you think the North Do you think the North Korean leadership, you think that Kim Jong-un 
would would make that would make that call would pull the trigger on firing a nuclear weapon at a US city if he could I think that that certainly that's the last resort for a North Korean leader but if a North Korean leader like Kim Jong Un thought he was going down anyway then yes I think that he would take out either a US Japanese or Chinese city because Kim Il Sung told his son Kim Jong Il the father of the current leader of North Korea, that if you're going to die, take everybody with you. Wow, that's that's pretty terrifying stuff. And and we just saw they use VX, they use VX chemical in an assassination. They have very, by the way, one thing that is over their their stockpiles and ability to produce even more chemical weapons are vast. Right? This is we always focus on the nukes, but the chemical side of the equation. And for I don't know what their biological weapons program is like, but it, biological weapons are not. It's not hard. I mean, if you get your hands on on some smallpox, it's not that hard to figure out ways to spread it into a population. Uh, but their chemical weapon stockpiles are tremendous. Yes, and they can be fired by artillery shells. And they say that in the first hours of a war on the Korean Peninsula, you could count the casualties in Seoul alone, about maybe 250,000, maybe more, in the first couple hours or so. And And that really is North Korea's deterrent. They don't need nuclear weapons. Um, because they already have the ability to prevent any attack on North Korean soil because of what they can do to South Korea. So the only there's no there's no assault option to take out the North Korean regime that doesn't have catastrophic consequences. There's no there's no military fix to this, clearly. So a internal revolution is, I suppose, the only way that this happens. That doesn't seem like it's likely anytime soon. Well, no, it doesn't seem likely anytime soon, but there are a lot of things that we can do to undermine the regime to sort of get the North Korean people to view the leadership in a different light. This is a long-term information campaign. We haven't been willing to do that. Um, And so I think that there are a lot of options for us to really push this forward. If Kim Jong-un had an unfortunate slip in the bathtub and he was with us no more, is there somebody that's already pretty much ready to step in who's just as crazy? Do we not know who would take over? Yeah, we don't know who would take over because um, although there is a um, fourth-generation Kim, it's a girl, and under a Confucian society, that would be unacceptable. Also, the fourth-generation Kim is about one or two years old. Um, there really is no Kim heir beyond Kim Jong-un because Kim Jong-un's older brother, Jong Chol, um, is just doesn't have a dictator gene. So um, probably what we would see is some sort of collective leadership, probably based around the military, I would guess. Um, but at this point, um, it's either Kim Jong-un or nothing. And I, I, so I assume that he will try to produce an heir and keep the dynasty going, and that is, that is the plan. Yes, well, um, that's the plan. I mean, he's already got one. Um, but he needs a few more. And so I think that um, he's going to be in production. The problem for him, of course, is that he's not in very good health himself, even though he's just 32, 33 years old. And and that means that he's got to get busy to get an heir in place, trained, by the way. Um, And uh, he's running out of years to do that, even though he is considered to be a junior. Gordon Chang is a Forbes contributor and author of The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon, always a pleasure, sir. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much, Buck. All right, team. Phone lines are open. We got a lot, well, I shouldn't say a lot more because we're getting close to the end of the show. And now I'm already starting to 
during the breaks drift off into what is in my Netflix queue that I'm really excited about? What am I going to be spending my weekend uh, doing? I wish I could tell you that I was going to be rocking out in New York City and uh, staying, you know, hitting hitting the clubs until 2 a.m. Please, 2 a.m. We're like 4 a.m. Buck. Um, no, there's there's definitely frozen chicken nuggets and sweatpants and Netflix and Amazon Prime watching in my future, which I know to a lot of you, you probably realize sounds great. Be right back. I said yesterday when we were talking about weed and guns that today I would talk about guns and now I realize I forgot and it's very late in the show, but I'm gonna try, I'm gonna keep my promise and say that we can talk more about this if you want next week. So Maryland has a ban on assault assault weapons, so-called assault weapons, uh, on semi-automatic rifles with cosmetic features that look scary, which is what assault weapons are, and also on 10-round capacity magazines. And uh, they, the, the appeals court, the Fourth Circuit, and it's, I'm trying to now distill a 116-page judicial decision into a few minutes on radio. Uh, here's more or less what it said, and I can give you some of the text, uh, which is that we conclude, contrary to the now-vacated decision of our prior panel, that the banned assault weapons and large-capacity magazines are not protected by the Second Amendment. That is, we are convinced that the banned assault weapons and large-capacity magazines are among those arms that are, like M16 rifles, weapons that are most useful in military service, which the Heller Court singled out as being beyond the Second Amendment's reach. Put simply, we have no power to extend Second Amendment protections to weapons of war that the Heller decision explicitly excluded from such coverage. Uh, that nevertheless, we also find it prudent to rule that even if the banned assault weapons and large capacity magazines are somehow entitled to Second Amendment protection, the district court properly subjected the FSA to intermediate scrutiny and correctly upheld it as constitutional under that standard of review. So there, they go even beyond what the lower court had said here, and they just declare that uh, assault assault weapons, which don't really have a defi- a, a clear definition. Because, as you all know, as you listening to this show know, I'm sure, a semi-automatic rifle is, well, that's what an assault weapon is. It's just a a rifle where you depress the trigger and one round exits the chamber. Uh, So that's not a definition. M16-like rifles, I suppose these judges didn't do the basic homework to find out that an M16 is, uh, has a fully automatic version and also can i believe have a three uh burst fire three three bullets each time you pull the trigger uh, it depends on which m16 we're talking about here but the m16 is fully automatic the uh ar-15 is a semi-automatic rifle they don't care uh, but they also cite heller to undermine heller or really to cite heller to uh <laughs> to misuse it and um, they say here that there, that there are weapons that are military in nature or most useful for the military that those aren't protected by the second amendment well what is that where does that stop a sniper rifle is what is the difference the functional difference between a sniper rifle and a 30 out 6 you use to go shoot deer as in fact a 30 out 6 to shoot deer could be a pretty good sniper rifle and there's really no difference i mean sure if you're talking about a, a Barrett 50 cal there are some that are uh, in in use for the military, that I, I don't think anyone's going out there deer hunting with with a fifty caliber uh, with a fifty caliber rifle. I mean that would that would be literal overkill. Um, but if you look at a lot of the you know, if you look at a at a Win Mag or you know a lot of the rifles that 
are carried um, by snipers in the military, the functional difference between them and a, and a rifle used for deer hunting is there's really nothing. Maybe one is, well, you can get a camo, you know, yeah, but nothing. Uh, so this standard, if applied, would mean that really all rifles can be banned. And the whole idea that rifles are the problem when it comes to gun violence is just an unsustainable intellectual position to hold. There's so little gun crime that involves rifles at all. There are occasionally very uh, well-publicized and horrific mass shooting incidents that use rifles, but there are also horrific mass shooting incidences that use pistols and use standard handguns. Uh, We saw the Fort Hood shooting. The guy had two handguns, and that was a terrorist attack, but it was also a mass shooting. And so a handgun is also a, a very useful weapon for military purposes. So there's, there is no standard here. This is just judges who don't understand or care to understand firearms writing a decision that allows them to grandstand about how assault weapons are weapons of war. And the 10 magazine limit as well, what is that? So they think that this is going to save lives how? At Fort Hood... Uh, Nadal Hassan had just practiced to change out the magazines quickly, and it, it didn't slow him down at all. I mean, not not in any meaningful sense. Uh, so we've already seen this play out. Their arguments are incredibly weak. They are legally flimsy. But it just goes to show you that even when Republicans have the House, the Senate, and the presidency, the judiciary, which has been—and this judici—this, the Fourth Circuit, has been packed— with Obama nominees, but the judiciary, which has been stacked with progressives under Obama's eight years, is now um, at the vanguard of the anti-Trump resistance. And that will be on issues because people say Trump is conservative on some stuff, not conservative on, on others. Well, all conservative issues will now come under fire from the, much of the judiciary, which is going to view itself as the law, the last stronghold of progressive uh, Democrat ideology and influence in what is law and in what becomes policy. So very concerning stuff uh, happening in Maryland with that. And we will have to uh, revisit some of these assault weapons bans when I have more time. Uh, Please do download the podcast. As I said, it's on iTunes. Just type in Buck Sexton in the search bar on iTunes. It'll pop right up. You can subscribe, which would be the best thing you could do. Please do that. iHeartRadio has a great app that you can download it on as well. You can listen to it live when we're on the show. Shields high, everybody.